I love Palm Sunday. I love it because it's the beginning of Holy Week. I love it because it's a little reminder that Easter is on the next Lord's Day. I love it because it's an interactive worship service. And the more I read the scriptures, the more I think we ought to have more interactive worship services. And on on Palm Sunday, you're not just involved in when there's singing or when you're standing with the reading of the scripture and the response. But you can go nuts with your palm branch if you want to. Now, we're Baptists, so we don't usually want to. But you can if you want to. And, And so we all have these branches we wave them, and I assume we know what it's about, but if not, we're going to talk about it this morning, that on that day, that first Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, the people gathered, and when they welcomed Jesus the way they did, they were not only welcoming their king into Jerusalem, but they were doing something rather major and extreme and dangerous by saying, by choosing this king, we are rejecting another king, the emperor Caesar. And we're saying this is the king for us. Now, by the end of the week, we're going to see them changing their tune 180 degrees. But on that day, they were saying, no, we don't we don't follow the emperor. We have our king. And here he comes. And it's hard, I think, for us as 21st century Americans to get our minds around this because we've never had a king of America, although we have had an emperor, if you didn't know. Yeah, in the 19th century. In the the 1850s, actually, America got an emperor. His name was Joshua Norton. I don't know if he's related to Dorothy Norton or not. You may be royalty, Dorothy. Or as he liked to be called, his imperial majesty, Emperor Norton I. At first, he was just kind of a, a rich, eccentric guy. He lived in San Francisco, made all of his money with rice, buying and selling rice. You know how people get rich with rice? Well, he was, he was buying and selling at a high level. And at one point, one rice deal went sideways, and he lost his whole fortune and his grip on reality. He kind of snapped, and he started to have delusions of grandeur, which, by the way, are my favorite kind of delusions. And he he began to think of himself as such an important figure. And, And by imperial decree in 1859, he said, I am now the acting emperor of these United States and protector of Mexico. And what I love about this story is that when he declared this and he would go out into the city, and I mean he really hammed it up. He got himself like regalia. He put a peacock feather in his hat. He wore a sword all the time. He had those like shoulder frilly things, right, and a cape. And when he walked around and surveyed his domain, people didn't mock him and jeer at him and laugh at him. They loved the guy. He was a treasure of San Francisco. And so as he would go about and as he would do uh, his emperor things, police officers as he walked by would salute and say, how are you this morning, your majesty? People who owned restaurants would invite him to come in and eat for free. And they put up a plaque by the table that said, the emperor ate here at this table. You would not even think about opening a performance or a play or something without reserving balcony seats for Emperor Norton and his two dogs. And and this went so far that when he would get into deep debt, which happened frequently, he would print his own currency and people would accept it. And then they could turn around as long as they were still in San Francisco and pay other people with it. It was, it was viewed as legal tender, which was probably some kind of federal offense, but everyone looked the other way. And, and you know, he didn't just 
walk around and, and survey his empire. He actually had ideas, crazy ideas, but ideas. For example, he said, or he decreed, that we ought to build a suspension bridge over San Francisco Bay and a tunnel underneath it, and that America should start a League of Nations. Of course, all of which happened only after he died. And so much did the people love Emperor Norton that when he died, 10,000 people gathered at his funeral. The largest funeral in the history of the city. And, and people who were very prominent and, and fixtures in society were there. Kings and queens sent letters. And when they had the procession and took his body, 30,000 people lined the streets to mark the passing of this emperor. Now, Emperor Norton was not hurting anybody. By all accounts, he was harmless, except for that one time that he decreed that Congress should be dissolved by force, but he didn't follow through with that. He actually backed off from that, which is good, because think about how sad it would be, and how, how troubling, and what a, what a shock it would be to him had he tried to gather together an army and, and make this happen, and have some kind of an uprising or coup or something. He would have found out very, very quickly that he wasn't actually emperor of anything. And he was not the center of the universe. And he was fooling himself all along. It, it very much makes me think of this Far Side comic. Do you remember the Far Side? My second favorite comic strip of all time. There was one in which there, there is a very dorky looking guy seated at a desk in kind of military regalia with an enormous portrait of himself on the wall behind him. And then there are two people in lab coats talking to him. And one of them says, sorry, your highness, but you're not the dictator of Ithuvania, a small European republic. In fact, there is no Ithuvania. The hordes of admirers, the military parades, this office, we faked it all. It's an experiment in human psychology. In fact, your highness, your real name is Edward Belcher. You're from Long Island, New York, and Eddie, it's time to go home. And I think about how jarring that must be for poor Eddie, or would have been for poor Emperor Norton had he discovered that he was not, in fact, the center of the universe. And I think about how sad it is that there will be people who will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and realize that they had been pulling an Emperor Norton their whole lives, telling themselves the world revolves around me and the most important thing in the world is that I am happy and my desires only to find out that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we have this dynamic very much at play in this text in Luke 19, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem as King and Messiah. And of course, this is the beginning of Holy Week, when we relive Jesus last week on earth before his crucifixion and resurrection when we talk about him on Monday going in to cleanse the temple, about him throughout the week going in teaching in the, the temple courts while his enemies plot his arrest and his trial and execution. We think about how he suffered in the garden on Thursday night as he sweat blood and prayed, not my will, but your will be done. We think about his, his, his being protected uh, his kangaroo court and being condemned and being mocked and beaten. We think about his being crucified on our behalf. And then next Sunday, as we say, he is risen, he is risen indeed, we think of his resurrection. But it all begins here with this text in chapter 19. And while this may be the beginning of Holy Week, it's not the beginning of the story. 
You may remember when we did a study all the way through Luke, it took a year and a half, but it was like 10 years ago, that there was this focal point, this pivotal moment in Luke 9, verse 51. It said, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. All the way back in chapter 9, he set his face. And the next 10 chapters are him making his way there to die on a cross. And along the way, there is all, all sorts of stuff going on. You, you, you read this, this uh, gospel narrative and you see at every turn he's tempted. He's being, he's being tempted to go a different route. Satan is trying to distract him. Peter is trying to dissuade him. But Jesus has set his face and he will go to Jerusalem. And here now he has arrived. Jesus, our Savior. Now he's been to Jerusalem many times as a pilgrim. He's gone there since he was a baby. We know he went there as a boy. We know that he and his disciples have gone. This is probably the third time now that they have gone to Jerusalem during his public ministry. This is a day for pilgrims to arrive. Things are starting to ramp up. Everyone's getting excited. There's very little work being done in Jerusalem as people prepare for the feast. This is the day that you would set aside and select which lamb would be the Passover lamb for your home. And as this is all starting to ramp up, Jesus is going to go right into that gate from the east into Jerusalem, the one called the Golden Gate. Maybe that's another little connection to Emperor Norton. But in the Hebrew, they actually called it the Gate of Mercy. And how fitting is that, that our Savior would enter into the city through the Gate of Mercy. This is the gate through which it is said the Shekinah glory of God entered into Jerusalem and then into the temple and then into the most holy place. And Jesus himself enters in. Got a couple of trivia questions for you today to keep you on your toes. And you know, it's okay because they're all about Hebrew words. Does anyone know the meaning of the word Jesus, the name Jesus or Yeshua in the Hebrew? Salvation, exactly. Yeah, the word means salvation. Jesus himself is our salvation. This is why the angel says you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is our salvation, and our salvation enters into the city through the gate of mercy, and you can't make this stuff up. It is also very fitting, and even his disciples, thick-headed as they were, would have known something weird was going on. Something is different here. Yes, he had said to them, when I arrive in Jerusalem, I'll be rejected and I'll be beaten and killed and on the third day rise again. But apparently they were all like, uh-huh, not listening because they're caught off guard. But as they are about to enter in, something changes because they've been walking all around for three and a half years. Right? They're walking all around Judea and Galilee through Samaria and Perea. And now suddenly they're like half a mile from where they're headed. And Jesus says, I'm going to need a donkey. And he sends two disciples ahead to the town. And he says, go in, and you're going to see a, a donkey with a colt that's never been ridden. I want you to take the, the foal and, and bring the foal to me. And if anyone stops you and says, hey, that's my donkey, say, the Lord has need of it. And that's exactly what happens. And I always wonder about that person whose donkey it was. Could have been someone who recognized that this is one of Jesus' disciples. Remember, they were picked out even at night in the courtyard in the light of the fire while they're trying to hide themselves. 
Maybe it's someone who just heard about the resurrection of, of Lazarus, how Jesus raised Lazarus from death to life and now said, oh, I want something to do with him. Maybe it was just a pious Jew who heard the Lord needs it and said, well, I don't need it, and if the Lord needs it, here you go. But either way, Jesus gets on this, this animal, and he begins the descent. And this is the perfect place to begin for a Holy Week text, and that was the perfect place for Jesus to begin as he goes into Jerusalem. Not just because it was prophesied, and not just because it points him right at that gate, but because when you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look down, you have a beautiful view, a vista of Jerusalem. And so the flip side is, as they looked up, they would have a wonderful view of Jesus coming down toward them. This is 700 feet up. And he's looking down, the Kidron Valley is below, and he goes down, and people can watch him as he comes, and that's how all the excitement builds and builds and builds, and they're excited as they see him at a distance, and as word travels through the crowd, he's on a donkey, the fool of a donkey. The excitement grows even more. Because the people's minds start going to these Old Testament prophecies now being fulfilled. They start thinking of Isaiah 62.11. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Your Yeshua comes. Wouldn't be too big a stretch to say your Jesus comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Or maybe even more clearly, their mind would go to that passage in Zechariah that Lori read for us. Behold, he comes riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And so this was a very clear statement he's making. And when they see him, they wouldn't go, oh, interesting mode of transport. Their minds would immediately go to Messiah. Messiah is to come into this city on the foal of a donkey. And their response is very much political. And it's easy to miss that because we're so separated from it. Waving the palm branch. Political. Yeah, you can do it. All right. Yeah, interactive. Come on, wave your palm branches, people. You're being very political in church now. Not very Baptist of you. Now, why is it political? You think you'd just be, you're grabbing something that's nearby, snapping it off and waving it because it's near at hand, but that's not the case at all. The palm was a symbol of victory especially military victory. In fact, I have with me right here 10 shekel coin from Israel. To this day, what's on the back of it? A palm kind of towering over a couple of watchtowers. When you see the preview for like some kind of artsy movie, there's always that little scream that shows what awards it won at the festivals. What's around it? Palm branches. It still indicates to us winning, victory. We've won, and so there is a definite military, political overtones to that very action, as well as biblical and prophetic. There, there's also the very act of putting down their, their cloaks, right? That seems to me, when I hear that, I think chivalry, right? Oh, good. You see a young lady, and there's a mud puddle. You take off your coat, and you ruin it for no reason, because you could have just said, look, there's a mud puddle. Go around it. But whatever. That's not what's going on here. There's military and political connotations, Think back, remember when Jehu became king? He starts it off with a coup. He kills both the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And then he comes roaring and he rides really hard and fast. And as he enters in, everyone takes off their coats and put them down. You're king, you shouldn't be walking on the hard ground. You should be walking on something soft. Let us put our coats down. 
It makes me think of John the Baptist saying to the crowds, make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare His path. And this is part of preparing His path. They put down the palm branches. They put down their coats so that the ground would be soft as Jesus rode over it. And then they did something very, very political from an Israelite point of view by shouting the word, Hosanna. Another trivia question. How about multiple choice? What does Hosanna mean? Who thinks Hosanna means praise the Lord? Who thinks Hosanna means yip yip yahoo? Just some generic shout like Hosanna. Who thinks Hosanna means save us? Who has no idea what Hosanna means? Who didn't raise their hand at all and is still awake? Anybody? Anybody? If the person next to you didn't raise their hand, give them a good nudge because they are starting to nod off. It's actually Aramaic. Hoshiana. Hoshiana. And, or in the Hebrew, Hoshiana as well. And, and, and the word Hoshiana, it comes from the same root as Yeshua. You hear it in there? Yeshua. Hoshiana. It means save. And then the na part means either please or I pray or in the King James, I beseech thee. They're saying, save, we pray, save, we beg of you, save, we're pleading, save, save us. As they shout it, they're, they're quoting scripture and they're fulfilling prophecy at the same time. We, we think of Psalm 118, that's what was on their minds as they shouted this. And we hear the word Hosanna in that passage. Psalm 18, 118, rather, starting with verse 25. Oh Lord, save us. There, there it is. O Lord, Hosheana. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. All this is now happening as Jesus enters in hundreds of years later. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. This is on the mind of every person as they think of this messianic prophecy and as they think about Jesus fulfilling it and they begin calling him names that are associated with the Messiah and the king. They call him son of David. Very much a kingly designation. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you're like, it's Bible times. Isn't everybody coming in the name of the Lord? No, this means with the authority of the Lord. In fact, in, in this passage here in Luke, it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were just being kind of like living Bible, the message, paraphrastic about the verse. Of course that's what it means. Blessed is this king who's coming in the name of the Lord. And they all begin to praise him. And they're shouting his praises and they're shouting how he will save them. And how he is a king. And man, do the leaders start getting nervous. Because all their power and all their privilege rests entirely on Rome not getting fed up. So they say to Jesus, make them stop. Tell them shout something else. This is getting out of hand. We've had our disagreements, but we can all get on the same page here. And Jesus says, yeah, right. If they stop, the very rocks themselves will shout. This situation is so far out of the control of the religious leaders and elite Jesus' enemies, Jesus' followers, this is in the realm of God's sovereignty. And so, you know, he, he's essentially saying no one can stop 
the proclamation at this moment of how I am king and I am Messiah. And if you've read the Gospels, that may sound a little out of character for Jesus. Right? You read the Gospel of Mark, whenever he's healing somebody, he says, now don't tell anyone about this. Right? Don't tell them I'm the Messiah. Don't tell them. I... And they're all very horrible at following those instructions. They go out, oh yeah, I won't tell anybody. Guess what? But there's that... that messianic secret element or when jesus casts demons out and they shout you are the son of god they shriek you are the son of god and he says quiet shut up the spirits don't declare that and yet now here he is even in the gospel of john when he sometimes says like the guy sitting here talking to you is he i'm the messiah it's not to someone in israel but to a samaritan because they didn't have all the baggage cooked into what it meant to be the messiah this notion that he'd be a military conqueror and throw Rome off of their backs. There wasn't a Samaritan zealot sect like there was in Israel. But at this point now, as he reaches the end, the culmination of his earthly ministry, he's just about taught them all he can, save for one lesson, which they'll see on Good Friday, about what it means that he is Messiah. That he's not a military conqueror. Not at this moment, anyway. That when he came... In the past, he came to seek and save the lost, not to seek out and destroy the guilty. He taught them, give unto Caesar. He thought that would be pretty clear. He taught them, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left as well. Don't destroy your enemies, but pray for them. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he's even going to go to the point of dying on a cross to show them just what this means. And in this moment, he, everything about what he's doing indicates that he comes in peace. He's not on a horse, the animal of war. He's on a donkey, coming in peace and humility. And sure, he's surrounded by cheering, adoring fans, but they're just a bunch of losers. From the point of view of the leaders of Israel, they're, they're pilgrims, they're poor peasants, and here they are. He's got no trumpets He's got no standards and banners. He's got no chariots. He's got a donkey foal. And yet with all of this, they still don't get what he's trying to communicate. And neither would you, and neither would I. Because it is so far outside of the way that we expect God to work. We expect God to work how we would work. And we want to make him in our image. It says that they had seen his miracles and thus were very excited when he came into Jerusalem. They'd, they'd seen how he raised the dead, how he, he took water and turned it into wine. He took one little boy's lunch and turned it into a feast for thousands of people. And now they wanted him to do a greater miracle, to defeat Rome and make them free. And he could have. Jesus had 10,000 angels at the ready, he says on the cross. One angel kills 185,000 soldiers in the Old Testament. Remember that story? What could 10,000 do? Short work of Rome. You think he wasn't tempted? He was tempted in all ways as we are and yet remains without sin. These are his people, his countrymen, his family, his friends. He was tempted, but he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And he said, I came, I came to save you from your sins. I am salvation. I'm not earthly liberty. I'm not earthly revenge. I'm not any of the things you want to make in me into. I am salvation for you. Freedom from your sin. 
Freedom from the, the world and the devil and the wrath of God, which is rightly upon sinners. Instead, I'll bear it on my shoulders. And yet everyone in that crowd, as they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, and said all the right words with their lips, they all had their idea of how Jesus would save them, of what he would save them from, of what they wanted him to be on their behalf. Undoubtedly, some of them were there because this, this plague Jesus throughout his ministry, they heard he gives out free food. Hey, it's a party. It's Passover. Let's go see if he'll do it today. Maybe some were just caught up in the excitement of the moment. Crowds gathering. Well, I don't want to miss this. I want to remember I was there on that important day. Perhaps some came because they were ill or crippled or blind and they wanted to be healed. Perhaps some came because they were sure that this would be the beginning of the uprising that would put Rome off of their backs once and for all. But as he came and they said, who is this man? The answer from the crowd was, he is a prophet from Nazareth. It shows just what lens they were viewing this all through. Isn't it weird how you can be technically correct and yet completely miss the point? We, we spent a whole Sunday school class last week talking about how Jesus is a prophet. He, he had the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. We talked about priest this week. We talked about prophet last week. Yes, he's a prophet from Nazareth. But if they're thinking of him as just another prophet, or even the greatest prophet, like Muslims say today, they're missing the point of what he came to do. And as he looked out and he saw the people, all of whom had decided who he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do, he wept and wept bitterly. So on this Palm Sunday, the question I pose to you is, what is our motivation as we shout Hosanna and wave the palm branch and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? There are more answers now to that question of who is this Jesus than there were at the time of the triumphal entry, and perhaps more than there have ever been. You could ask 100 people who is Jesus and why did he come and get 98 different answers. There's a, a great movement afoot that Jesus, he, he came to, to give you wholeness and peace of mind and self-actualization and make you the best you that you could be. Jesus is essentially your therapist then. Now, can Jesus help people who are struggling with depression or something like that? Yes, of course, of course he can. But if that's what you think he came to do, you're missing the point of his entry into Jerusalem and the days that followed. There's even a, a movement afoot. It's, I can't believe it's hung around now 20, 25 years. If we can figure out what Jesus ate, you know, in the place that he was, at the time that he was, what would he have eaten? And we eat that, we'll be healthier. So Jesus came to be my dietitian. Missing the point, he came to be our lamb. And when we do this, when we recast Jesus into whatever kind of Hosanna we want him to be, we find ourselves walking in the footsteps of his imperial majesty, Emperor Norton I, fooling ourselves that we are the center of everything, that Jesus sure could be our king, but he'll be king on our terms. This is what caused Jesus, as he looked down at Jerusalem, to weep. In verse 42, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, Jesus came to be king on his own terms. Jesus came to be our sacrifice. 
The Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to be our forgiveness. He came to be our peace. Our peace with God. And it's so significant that He came into Jerusalem on that day. Because as I mentioned, on that day, families were all selecting their Passover lamb. And as Jesus came in and the crowds all shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, they were selecting their ultimate Passover lamb whose sacrifice once for all would take away the sins for all who believed. And then on Good Friday, as they shouted, Crucify, Crucify, they would show that that sacrifice was going to be offered up for wicked men, and yet according to the eternal plan of God. And so perhaps the other question that we should ask on this Palm Sunday is as we shout Hosanna and praise Him in this holy sanctuary, are we part of the crowd or are we one of His disciples? Because there are two distinct groups present in that day. And they're intermingled with each other and you wouldn't be able to pick out who was who probably just by looking. But the crowd is just caught up in the moment, the revelry of it, the energy of it, the excitement of it. Some religious traditions require that, that sense of euphoria that comes with the whole crowd coming together and everyone freaking out and going, ah, God is here now. I feel some kind of something. But that can change. It comes and goes. And you can be caught up in that energy and still see yourself as the center of everything. Still be an emperor, Norton. You, you, can, you can be caught up in that moment on Sunday and then caught up on Friday in another moment and be part of the crowd shouting, crucify, crucify blowing this way and that with every wind of doctrine or every trend on Twitter. But to be part of his followers, to be one of his disciples, is to say, I'm going to take a risk. It's to say, oh, I will go ahead to that town and take that foal and trust that when I say, uh, the Lord needs it, that what Jesus said would happen, would happen. I will take up my cross and follow him knowing he's going to be arrested and still follow him. I will watch and pray with him into the night while he weeps. Not just be a fair-weather friend and excited when he's excited, when the world's excited, but a follower of his through everything I encounter. Because Jesus did not say, if you love me, throw a big party for me. If you love me, let's have a parade and you can shout Hosanna. He said, if you love me, Follow my commandments. Keep my commandments. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, take up your cross and follow me. Words of praise are one thing, but Jesus wants our entire lives. And when you read to the end of the story, you find out what he's given us here is grace. He, he throws open the doors of salvation and says, whoever will, come, come, come. Now, well, the door is open. And just like the door eventually closed on Noah's Ark, the door eventually closes. And the next time we see Jesus coming, it is a whole different story. In Revelation 19, John says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. He's no longer on the foal of a donkey coming in peace. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and none of them are made of thorns. 
He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. On this day we remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, humble, coming to bring peace, knowing what it would cost him, the suffering of Thursday and Friday to even die for us. He came and was willing to do it. As we shout Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King who comes. Save, we pray. Save us, we beseech thee. May we not be trying to displace him simultaneously from the center and put ourselves there and say, Lord, I only want you to save me in this way, this way, in this way. But may me fall down at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, save me from myself. Save me from the wrath of God that comes rightly on sinners. Save me from the flesh. Save me from my tendency to follow the world and its values instead of your word. Save me from Satan and his wiles and all of his schemes. Save me. Save me entirely. I will take up my cross and follow you. Not just with a palm frond in my hand, but with a cross on my shoulder. I will follow you to the end. We know we will, like Peter, not follow through on all of our promises. But thank God our Savior saves us even when we drop the ball. That even if you've fallen away today, you can return to Him. And when you shout Hosanna, He will hear your praise. He will hear your plea. Save, I pray. And He will always welcome you into His presence with open arms. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Palm Sunday. We thank you that you came not as a a fake emperor coming into a place that you had no business uh, declaring yourself the emperor of and making a show of it like Emperor Norton. Lord, you came having laid the groundwork for millennia, having been decreed from eternity past our prophet, our priest, and our king. Coming not only as the priest, but as the sacrifice itself and the altar on which it is offered. Lord, we are so thankful for what you have done for us. And we pray that as we offer our feeble praise and our promises that are destined to be broken, that, Lord, we would remember your grace in that moment, that we would remember that you wept over Jerusalem, that, Lord, you weep over our disobedience and our rebellion, and you offer us forgiveness, that when we sin, we confess our sins, and you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness so that we can be part of that throng we read about in Revelation, welcoming you with palm branches in our hands, wearing spotless white linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints, Lord, knowing that everything in our lives and everything for all eternity is geared toward you, glorifying you, enjoying you forever. Lord, may that be how we begin this holy week in 2019. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.